Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series celebrating our freedom in Christ today with a message Dr. Newfeld's entitled Matters Which Demand Submission. So turn to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 18 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Those of you who know me know that no one could accuse me of being passionate about classical music. But I do have my moments when I long for an experience at the symphony. And when I do, I'm usually overwhelmed with beauty. And even I, who am musically unlearned, do know what it is to be in the presence of splendor. Now, violinists are usually the star of the show. And here's a little secret. Violinists gladly sacrifice their freedom to that which somebody has dictated to them. But of course, they're not alone. In this surrender of personal creativity, I mean, all of the other instruments must blend together, all being directed by someone who has authority over the entire orchestra. And I say all of that because in order to produce the loveliness of sound, it seems to me that much of the freedom of the individual is taken away. I mean, the first violinist, who's usually an accomplished musician, deliberately surrenders his or her freedom of expression to the conductor and to the score or to the desires of a composer who's died many years ago. But in surrendering her freedom as she does, I am personally benefited for what's presented to me can lead me to a point of tears of joy. So we've been talking about Christian freedom and that from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 11. In chapter 8, we saw the issue. In ancient Corinth, converts to Jesus were presented with a free choice. Should they eat food that had in the past been offered up in the temple to an idol? And the reason why a Christian might do that is because the food was cheaper or because a non-Christian had invited them to a meal. And they were free to do as they pleased because they knew that the idol was nothing and that Jesus was Lord of all, even over the food that had been offered to an idol. The food was God's food and not the idol's food, and so they were free to choose to do what they wanted to do. Ah, the joy of Christian freedom. But here's another consideration. Eating food offered to idols often scandalized new believers, causing them to stumble. They had former associations with idols, and seeing Christians hanging around so-called sacred food was wrecking their commitment to Jesus. And so Paul is arguing it's, it's better to deliberately limit your freedom for a greater good, the good of a spiritual life of the weaker brother. And so as an example of that principle at work, Paul speaks about his free and voluntary choice not to receive a salary for his ministry while he's in Corinth. Because of the Corinthian Christian attitude toward money, he refused financial compensation. Now, when we last discussed this matter, we left off with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, verse 13 reads, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering? See, Bible teachers have often wondered which temple Paul is referring to in this passage. I mean, since at the time of this writing, the temple in Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed, and since the Old Testament had a great deal to say about which portion of the offering actually belonged to the priest, it's very natural for us to think that Paul means the temple in Jerusalem. But since Paul uses the words, do you not know, assuming that everyone in Corinth did know, see, it really is possible that he's, he's referring to an experience that everyone in Corinth had. 
I mean, the city was full of temples to pagan deities, and everyone knew that the priests and the priestesses of these temples received their wages from the offerings that were presented there. I mean, might be that Paul is simply pointing out something that everybody already knew. Those serving at the temple received their wages at the temples. Now, then he adds a most emphatic point. Verse 14 says, in the same way, The Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Now, when Paul says the Lord commanded, he means Jesus commanded. Jesus, says Paul, taught that those who proclaim his gospel should earn a living through gospel proclamation. Now, where did Paul get that idea? Well, let's consider Matthew 10, verses 9 to 10, where Jesus sent his 12 disciples out on a short-term missions assignment. And there he told them, Do not take food and money along, for he said, the laborer deserves his wages. See, the idea being that worthy people along the way are going to support the disciples as they're declaring the gospel. People will support you, says Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus himself, along with his disciples, were being supported by others all the time. Listen to Luke 8, verses 2 to 3, where it says, Some who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities... Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for him, says the text, out of their means. And so says Paul, because of what Jesus explicitly taught, and we could also add because Jesus also lived by receiving support for his ministry from those whom he ministered to, Paul says, I also have the right to receive a salary which is commensurate with the work that I do. That's an established fact. It comes to us from Jesus himself. Now, we come to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And it's here that we might notice that Paul not only refused a salary while in Corinth, but that he had often done so, unlike what Jesus had done, in other places as well. Now, earlier in this chapter, he said, and I quote, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And by that, he means he has another job. He is not supported by the ministry. Earlier on, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and there he said, and I'm reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, while Paul is in Corinth, Luke would write, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So we do know that Paul worked in a tent making business with others while in Corinth. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 34, Paul would say to the Ephesians, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessity and to those who were with me. So apparently, Paul didn't get a salary in Ephesus either. And the real question remains, if it was his right to receive a salary, and if it was a generally accepted practice everywhere, and that Jesus himself had done so, why did Paul think that it was such a big deal both to refuse a salary and then to work to the point of exhaustion to take care of his own needs? I mean, does he think he was being super spiritual when he did that? 
Well, last time we discussed one of the problems in the Corinthian church was that they were cheap and and they needed to understand that giving was a part of the life of Christ. And so why didn't Paul simply teach them that and then receive a salary that he was entitled to? I mean, after all, all the other apostles did receive salary. Now, in order to understand that, let's try to understand this from Paul's perspective. Paul's ministry was very different from, let's say, the ministry of the apostle Peter. Peter's ministry was among the Jews, and in that context, everyone understood the relationship between a teacher and those who supported them. I mean, there's no problem at all. A salary would never raise eyebrows. But Paul preached the gospel to Gentile cities where Christ had never been preached, and it was very natural then for Gentiles to think of Paul as a man who had come to establish a new religion in order for him to make a living by that, just like, for instance, the great speakers that came through Corinth or anyone else who'd established a different temple or a mystery religions. They did it just to make a living. Now, refusing to take a wage distinguished Paul from everyone else who had ever come to Corinth. And then once the church had gotten going, he still refuses a wage, and so he distinguishes himself as a man who must have a very different motive from what everyone else is doing. And furthermore, it also releases him from the kind of scrutiny that he would have been under in Corinth where many had not yet learned the freedom of giving. Now, might I add here that a pastoral salary can be quite restricting. See, I remember some time ago having a discussion with a man who had served on a church board for many years, and he said to me, we insist on paying our pastor. I mean, how else can we tell them what to do? So from his perspective, the salary made the pastor his employee. I mean, do you want evidence that it's so? You know, I have noticed that even though the Bible makes no distinction between an elder and a pastor, In today's church world, at least to many people, an elder is someone who does it as a volunteer and a pastor is paid. And therefore, you can discipline a pastor, but never discipline an elder. Ah, the complications of a salary. During the month of August, we'll be unveiling a slightly new visual look for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. This change came as a result of a deep search into a a 60-plus year legacy of ministry and a determination to continue our commitment to offering trustworthy Bible teaching. To celebrate the past and embrace the future of Bible teaching, Dr. Neufeld will be airing a brand new five-message series entitled Bible Teaching You Can Trust. This is a biblical study of the key elements that indicate the Bible teaching you're listening to is trustworthy. This will air on this radio station, online, podcast, and in our mobile app. But we also want to offer you the series on CD as our gift for free. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And if Bible teaching you can trust is something you value, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift of support. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Paul has been making the case that while it is his right to receive a salary, he has used his freedom to refuse all financial compensation. And lest he be misunderstood, he adds, I'm not writing these things so that you'd feel guilty and give me one in the end. 
Indeed, in the end of verse 15, he even adds, I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, if you're listening carefully here, you might think, well, what Paul has in mind is that he's boasting all the time that he doesn't receive a salary, but why would he do that? Is he trying to show everyone of just how spiritual he is? Well, let's follow his train of thought. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, let me try to put these in my own words. Paul is saying there's nothing praiseworthy about my preaching the gospel. I didn't choose to do this. Rather, I was ordered to do it from a source that I couldn't refuse. Well, was that so? Well, consider the evidence. Acts 19 records Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And after those events, yes, you remember, Jesus appears to a man named Ananias. And in Acts 9, verse 15, Jesus says to Ananias, he that is Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You know, from that moment on, Paul understood not only that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was Lord, but he also understood that his Lord had issued him a command, much like a commander in chief might do. Listen to how Paul begins the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called, he says, to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Or this is how he begins 1 Corinthians. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He starts much the same way in the book of 2 Corinthians. And then Galatians begins with these words. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then Ephesians begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I mean, we could just keep on going, but I think you get the point. Paul never volunteered, nor did he apply for this position. Christ, his Lord, both chose him for his role and then commanded him to do what he was doing. And if he were to disobey, he says, woe to me. I mean, compare Paul's attitude to that of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah, who was set apart as a prophet from before he was born, says, If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. See, Jeremiah does not prophesy, but for any other reason that he has been commanded to do so by God, and it's impossible for him not to obey. And Paul is exactly the same. Now, someone's going to ask, is this the experience not only of Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, is this also the experience of every pastor and teacher today? Now, to that I would answer no, but in another fashion, yeah. Now, when I say no, I mean that what is at stake in the prophets and the apostles was the writing of scripture. If they had said no, we wouldn't have the word of God. I mean, no pastor or Bible teacher is that today. God's word has once for all been given, and all a pastor or a teacher does is simply restate that which has been given before. Now, furthermore, I think we do a great injustice to pastors if we are to say that they must continue in their office until they die. I mean, we have to leave room for people in pastoral ministry today to conclude that perhaps this is not their gift mix or that they no longer sense the burden for the work. I mean, in that case, they might, I stress, they might be right in quitting. I'm not arguing that we must allow them to exit if they sense that that's their calling. See, but most pastors would argue that they were called rather than that they simply applied for a position. I mean, I feel that way very strongly myself. I have within me a sense 
of obligation. Now, I normally say to pastors, look, if you can do anything else, you should do that other thing. I mean, if, if you sense, however, that you'd be disobeying God if you did something else, then you are one of those condemned fools who are called to preach. And says Paul, in his case, as an apostle, he therefore has no boast in his ministry. He's simply doing that which he has been ordered to do. Now to verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Now, notice two very important words in that sentence. The first is the word reward, and the second is the word steward. Now, in Paul's day, stewards, to the most part, were slaves. But rather than performing menial functions, stewards were highly capable slaves who were entrusted with managing their master's household And that would include like physical property. It might also include overseeing of other slaves on staff. It would almost always include finances. And for Paul, the gospel itself was his stewardship. It wasn't his. It belonged to his master, but his master had ordered him to preach it. Now to the word reward. He says he has no reward in preaching the gospel. Now, when you think about that, you might remember Luke 17, verse 10. It's part of a parable that Jesus told, which everyone in his day would have understood very well when he told it. A master has a servant, and after the servant does everything the master commanded, Jesus asks, will the master thank him? I mean, no doubt everyone laughed and said, of course not. I mean, masters didn't act that way. And then in verse 10, Jesus concludes, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, Jesus isn't saying that God's rude or that he doesn't care about his people's obedience, but he is saying that our God is our commander and that a command is exactly that. It's a command, not a request. And that's why there is no reward for obeying a command. Obeying a command is an obligation, not a commendable act. If you're in the military, for instance, and your superior addresses you, you may be called upon to salute. And after you've saluted, your officer doesn't thank you for the compliment. The salute was required. If you obey, you're fine. If you don't salute, well, woe be to you. And that, says Paul, is exactly what I did when I preached the gospel to you Corinthians. I merely responded to a direct order. I had no freedom to refuse this was stewardship. Now to verse 18, what then is my reward? Or is there any reward at all for obeying this direct order? Well, yes, there is. Look at verse 18 again. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Think of it this way. A Roman soldier might conscript a civilian to carry his military pack for one mile. But what if that civilian carried the pack for two miles? That was a commendable act of love. And that was Paul's boasting. I have been given a privilege of going the second mile of doing something that I was not required to do. But even though I wasn't required to do it, I did it out of freedom. And that, says Paul, is my reward. God allowed me to do something I wasn't required to do. And that thing showed my love and devotion to him. Now to our application. See, the same is true for the Corinthians. They had the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but they might, if they wanted to go the second mile, act freely and protect the weaker brother or sister who might be hindered in their faith if they see Christians eating food offered to idols. 
Their act of not seizing their rights but acting to protect one another is an act of freedom rather than acting out of rights. And boy, I hope you see the application to that. You know, we've been talking about all those things a believer might claim as a part of Christian freedom, like the right to eat and drink what we like. Now, here's my story in this regard, for whatever it's worth. You know, when I first came to Christ, I came from a Christian home in which my parents had an occasional glass of wine. I mean, they consume a bottle of wine in about three months. I mean, never saw the abuse of alcohol in the home that I grew up. And then I came around people who abused alcohol and people who were addicted to alcohol and people who were mastered by alcohol. And I had become a Christian leader. Now, hear me, I have a right to have the occasional drink and no one has the right to condemn me for that. But God showed me that I could freely let go of that right to protect others. And God also showed me to freely use that right and do so. So how about you? You know, if the Apostle Paul could forgo a salary for the greater good of the gospel, how might you use your freedom today? If all you ever do as a believer is claim your rights and do only that which is required, how are you free in any sense at all? It's not until we do something that we're not required to do that we ever enter the realm of freedom and the realm of great reward. I mean, like a violin player, if you give up some of your rights and freely do so, what music can you produce for the glory of God and for the good of the kingdom and for the eternal advantage of those who need to hear? John, how by giving up my rights do I actually increase my freedom? Yeah, it does seem that anything I give up restricts freedom rather than maximizes it. And it's probably because of the way in which we use the word freedom, but it's also in the way in which we understand how our lives get lived. Ben, I remember years ago when I was in seminary, I had a prof that told me that every single person in public ministry ought to do something in private which calls them to sacrifice something which no one will ever know you are doing except God alone. And in that way, he said, you'll give something up not for the praise of others, but simply for the glory of God. So that was his encouragement to all of us, and I've never forgotten that. And so I do think if we get used to surrendering something that is ours by right and doing it not not because we have to, but because it sets us free to do that, I think that reward in our relationship to God is enhanced many times. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Have you been considering joining us for the 2021 Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience? Well, after much consideration and prayer, the ministry has decided that we'll be postponing our next Israel experience to 2022. You'll understand why with so much uncertainty in our world right now. The exciting news is that those who have been nervous or reluctant to jump on board have a new window of opportunity. Join us in Israel April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, and consider adding to your experience our extension to Jordan May 2nd to May 7th, 2022. This will definitely be a journey of a lifetime. 
register soon because even though the date is a little ways away, the space is limited. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.